Well, our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's only 20 verses long. But Matthew 28, verses 1 through 20. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Give ear to the word of God. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have, see, I have told you. So that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled together, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers, but the flowers fade. uh, But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word even this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Matthew This gospel in Matthew 28, which tells us of the the resurrection of Christ, your Son, our Lord. And we ask once again that you would work in us by your Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your Word. Sanctify us by your truth, because your Word is truth, and convert the lost and glorify your name. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Easter Sunday obviously commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, And as we've said a few times probably already this morning, really every Sunday is a commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. That's why we call Sunday the Lord's Day. And it's the Lord's Day because it's his day. It's his day on Sunday because it was the day of the week in which he rose from the dead. Sunday is the reason we meet on Sundays, or the, the resurrection rather, is the reason we meet on Sundays for worship rather than Saturday, as they did all through the Old Testament. And our text this morning in Matthew's Gospel is his account of the resurrection of Christ. You might know 
Of course, all four Gospels have accounts of the resurrection of Christ. We already read from 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says it was one of the things that was what of first importance. How important is the bodily resurrection of Christ on the third day? What makes it so important? Go through a list of things, a number of things from Scripture before we go through our text. Uh, think about this. The apostles were first and foremost to be witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Acts chapter 1 tells us that that was one of the, the main qualifications to be an apostle in the first place. They had to be with Christ from the day of his baptism all the way to his resurrection. They had to basically be with him throughout his earthly ministry, and they had to witness his resurrection. They had to be witnesses of his being raised in glory. But it was also a summary of their calling. It wasn't just their qualification for the job. It was in some ways to be a witness of the resurrection was their job description. Acts one twenty two says they were called to be, quote, uh, each, each apostle was called to, to be, quote, a witness to his resurrection. Not just a witness of it, but a witness to it. They were to testify of it. They were to bear witness to Christ's resurrection. That was, in some sense, a, a summary of their preaching and teaching. Acts chapter 4, verse 2 tells us early on there that the priests and the Sadducees had Peter and John arrested. Remember that, how many times they were arrested? It says they were arrested, Peter and John were, quote, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Their preaching was not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that in him he was going to raise all of his people from the dead as well. That's why the, that's why the priests and Sadducees had Peter and John arrested. It wasn't just that they were preaching about Jesus in some general sense, although of course they were. They were arrested specifically because they preached in Christ the resurrection from the dead and the resurrection unto life for all who believe in him for salvation. Acts 4.33, the same chapter later on in the same chapter. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In other words, they're arrested, they're told to stop doing it, and what do they do? They go right back to testifying and preaching of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, as God had told them to do. And so the, the, the message of the apostles, in, in some way, Luke, the writer of Acts, summarizes it as a preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how, that's how big of an emphasis it was in the apostles' preaching. That's how big a theme it was throughout their preaching and teaching. It, it came up almost in everything. If you are to read through, which I hope you have done and will continue to do, but read through the epistles of the New Testament, you will find a vast multitude of references to Christ's resurrection, both to the fact and the simple truth of it, as well as the implications and applications of it, what it means for us as Christians, how it should change the way that we live. If you read, for example, the book of Romans, you may not have, you, you may have read the book of Romans a, a hundred times and maybe it never jumped off the page at you, but Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ throughout the book of Romans. And what is the book of Romans about? The book of Romans is a, is a, is his treatise, so to speak, on the gospel of our salvation in Christ. 
And Paul brings up the resurrection again and again and again throughout the book, and that's not a coincidence or an accident. He begins the epistle practically in verse in, in Romans 1 4, he says that by Christ's resurrection, it says he was, quote, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. It's the first thing practically that Paul talks about. That the Christ was raised from the dead, that this was a testimony and proof that he is the Son of God. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says that Christ was what? Raised for what? Raised for our justification. You might, we always think about his death on the cross, and rightly so, but Paul brings up his resurrection when it comes to our justification. He says in Romans 5.10, he goes on in the next chapter, Romans 5.10, he says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his what? His life, because he is no longer in the grave. Romans 6, 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, here it is, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when Paul talks about justification, what does he bring up? Christ's resurrection. When Paul talks about our sanctification in Christ and our walking in newness of life, what does he bring up? Christ's resurrection, our walking in newness of life for those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ, uh, your walking in newness of life is, is in the power of Christ's resurrection. It's in the likeness of his resurrection. Then again in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so the gospel from beginning to end has to do not just with Christ's death on the cross for our sins, as important as that is, but also with his glorious resurrection on the third day. Paul brings it up again and again and again in his treatise on the gospel. If you go, for example, to the book of Hebrews, we are taught there that Christ is our great high priest and that he, quote, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. His resurrection matters. Even the great benediction at the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3 speaks of the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. That's actually going to be our benediction, Lord willing, at the end of this service in Hebrews 13, verse 20 there. And then in the last book of your Bible, in the book of Revelation, really the whole book testifies to Christ's resurrection and ascension because he's the one at the right hand of God. He's the one with the authority to break the seals on the scroll, all those things. It it testifies to to his resurrection and his life, but... Revelation 1.5, when it talks about Jesus, right there at the beginning, it calls him what? The faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and ruler of kings on earth. He's the ruler of kings on earth because he was raised from the dead and then sits at God's right hand. 
So there's just a, just a handful of things to think about when you think about why the resurrection is so crucially important to the Christian faith. It's all through the scriptures. And so when you, when you read Matthew's account or, or, or Mark or Luke or John, those are the things to keep in mind. Why they spend so much time focusing on not just his death, but the resurrection as well. Well, let's look at our text this morning. The first thing that Matthew does in chapter 28 in our text is record for us the account of the resurrection of Christ himself in verses 1 through 10. So think about this. In the first 10 verses of the chapter, in a brief, just a mere 10 verses, what does he do? He, he sets forth the most amazing doctrine, the most amazing fact of history ever written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in just 10 verses. In verse 1, he says, After the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. In Mark's Gospel, you read that they brought spices, uh, Mark 16, 1, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So what are they doing? Why are they going there? They're going to give him basically a proper burial. He was hastily put in the tomb, it was the Sabbath, and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, and so he, he was killed on Friday. They put him in the tomb so they wouldn't be breaking the Sabbath, and now they're bringing these spices to anoint him to give him a proper proper burial. And they were so wanting to do this, it's like they were waiting at their doors. And as soon as the sun came up, they ran to the tomb. They didn't want to waste any time. They, 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 they would have done it sooner if they could have. Uh, but they got more than they bargained for, didn't they? What what happens when they get there, when they're on the way? Matthew says there was a great earthquake in verse 2. So you can imagine they're already kind of stressed out. They're already out of breath and running, and there's an earthquake. You know, living in Southern California, as we do even recently, we know a thing or two about earthquakes, don't we? There have been a number of earthquakes, small, you know, smaller ones in uh, recent days out in the Borrego uh, Desert area. None of them did any real damage. Most people that I know that even noticed them might have posted on social media, earthquake, but I don't think anybody was running for cover. I don't think anything got broken. I don't think anything fell off the walls or had any real damage done. I don't think any of us would say it was a great earthquake, any of the ones we felt recently. But Mark or Matthew rather says it was a great earthquake. Makes you kind of wonder what the measurement might have been on the Richter scale. Like how big was this quake? Was it a seven or an eight? Was it enough to, to knock everybody to the ground and, and scare everybody? But notice also, what was the cause? He doesn't just say, there just happened to be an earthquake, just coincidence. What was the cause of that great earthquake? In verse 2 he says, notice the way he puts it, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel caused the earthquake. The power and might of his descent and rolling back the stone and everything caused the earthquake. The angel's presence caused the earth to shake, and he rolled a huge stone back from the tomb and sat on it. And that wasn't the only thing that shook. The soldiers shook and trembled as well. He says in verses 3 to 4, his appearance was like lightning. Imagine an earthquake and a lightning storm at the same time. It's hard to imagine what what this must have looked like. He says, His appearance was like lightning, his clothing was white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards, the soldiers, trembled, trembled and became like dead men. Just imagine this scene. Imagine how terrifying this whole scene must have been 
in order to cause Roman soldiers to shake and fall to the ground as if they were dead. It's hard to imagine what this must have looked like, and yet that's what that's what happened. What about what about the two Marys? In verses five through six, Matthew says, But the angel, who just scared these soldiers witless, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, and then he adds, He is not here. You've come to the wrong, you're looking in the wrong place. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. So that same angelic messenger who terrified those soldiers nearly, nearly to death tells the women not to fear, which tells you they must have been afraid too. And rightly so in some ways. They had, but they had no need to fear. And why was that? The angel was coming to bring them good news. They were seeking Jesus who was crucified, but they weren't looking in the right Place And why is that? Because he wasn't there. He had risen even as he said. And the angel even invites them to come look for themselves. Come see the place where he had lay. Come check it out for yourself. He's not here. He rose from the grave just as he said. Think about this. These women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they were blessed to be the very first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. They were the first ones on earth in history to hear those words that we love to say every Easter. He is risen. He's not here. He's risen, even as he said. Think about the honor and privilege they had to hear those things and to see what they saw and to see Christ himself. Now, this angelic messenger gives them a a job, doesn't he? He came to bring them a message. He also came to make them messengers. He tells them, essentially, to go and tell. Come, see where he laid. See, he's not here anymore. Now go and tell yourself also. Now that go and tell is a theme throughout Matthew 28. If you, We'll try to highlight this as we go along. The angel tells them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 7. So they were to to go and tell the disciples that Christ had risen from the dead and that Jesus was on his way to Galilee and that they would see him there. And so what did they do? They departed quickly, verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. They they couldn't get there fast enough. As fast as they tried to get to the tomb to, to anoint his body for burial, even faster, they were running to Galilee, running to his disciples to tell them. They couldn't get there fast enough. And it says, Matthew notes, that they had fear and great joy. That might sound like an odd mix, but if you know the Lord, I think you know that's not odd at all. Psalm 2 verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. God's people, God's redeemed, know what that means. That This fear, this trembling, isn't a terror of judgment before the Lord. It's the fear of God. It's not the same dread those soldiers experienced where they fell like dead men to the ground. The fear and, and joy that the, the people that know the Lord, uh, the redeemed of the Lord know, It's that kind of fear is in no way inconsistent with great joy. If you're a believer in Christ, you fear God. You fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. But it also is something that goes along with great joy in Jesus Christ. We, we, we too should serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling because he has risen from the dead. Well, what happens on their way to Galilee? Now, Matthew kind of condenses this, uh, this account 
Seems like quite a bit, but in verses 10, Matthew says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And what did they do? He says, They worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell. There it is again. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So he, he repeats the same message of the angel. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And then he says, I'm going to go to Galilee. Tell my brothers, go Go and tell. Now, when he says in, in verse 9, greetings, that's uh, a common word in, in the Greek that's translated there, but it's the same word that is very often translated in your New Testaments as rejoice. He's doing more than saying hi. He's saying rejoice. You know, the different translations, we, they all struggle how to put it, you know, all hail and things like that. It's it's a happy greeting. It's a joyful Greeting, and, and it's a, it's an understatement even to put it that way. And notice what the women did, what Mary and Mary did. They worshipped him. Verse 9. Their worship of Jesus Christ and his acceptance of it is testimony and proof of his deity, of his divinity, that he is the very Son of God incarnate and raised in glory. Even the mighty angels of God do not and must not accept worship. Remember the book of Revelation chapter 22 verses 8 and 9. John fell at the feet of the angel and was going to worship him. What did the angel tell him? No, no, worship God. I'm just a fellow servant with you of the one true God. Worship God. Worship is reserved for God alone. And yet what do we see these women doing after Christ's resurrection? They're worshiping Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has no problem with it. He accepts their worship and tells them to go about what he told them to do. And why is that? Because he is our Savior, and our God. And then what what does our Lord Jesus Christ do? He repeats that same commission to the women that the angel had told them before. Do not be afraid, and then go and tell. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Do not be afraid. Go and tell. That's the same message in some ways that applies to us as as God's church even today. The next thing that Matthew brings up might not seem like a very happy thing. It might seem uh, like in some ways a a kind of an interruption in the story. We want to get to the good good parts, and yet uh, what he tells us about is the report of the soldiers. Matthew 22, verses 62 to 66, if you look at those verses, I'll sum it up for you. It tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees were so worried that the disciples might try to pull off a hoax and trick people into believing that Jesus had risen from the dead, that they went to Pilate, the secular authority there, and asked him to make the tomb as secure as he could. They didn't want any, they weren't going to take any chances that the disciples might try to pull a fast one. And so what did he do? He made it secure with a stone, he sealed the stone, and he put soldiers there. Now it's ironic that the Pharisees uh, and the chief priests they did not believe, right? And they were had a large role in crucifying Christ and his death and betrayal. They did not believe, but notice, in a weird way, they were more mindful of what Jesus said, at first at least, than even the disciples were. They remembered that Jesus said, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. They, they knew what day, they knew what Jesus claimed that he was going to do, and not only did they... Well, not only were they mindful of Jesus' words, they acted on it. They acted on it. They didn't just say, well, gee, I hope nothing happens. 
They went to Pilate, and why they thought Pilate could stop the Lord of glory, we don't know. They were, they were unbelievers. But they went to Pilate and said, hey, you know, you got to do something. If you don't do something, this guy that you crucified, people are going to say he rose from the grave, and the disciples are going to go steal the body. They, they acted on it. If only they had repented and believed in Christ instead. So Pilate had the tomb made secure with a stone, a seal, and soldiers. The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman political authorities conspired together to prevent any possibility that the followers of Christ, his disciples, these, these fishermen, might perpetrate a hoax and keep Christianity alive even with a dead Messiah. They weren't going to let that happen. They weren't going to take any chances. But the stone, the seal, and even the soldiers were no match for the angel of the Lord, much less for the Lord of glory. And so what did they do? Matthew tells us that they resorted to plan B. Plan A didn't work. You'd think that would have convinced them. Oh, we were wrong. We should believe in Christ. We should repent of our wickedness. But no, they resorted to a plan B. In verse 11, Matthew says, while they were going, the soldiers, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So you have the women going and telling, and you even have the soldiers, the guards, going and telling of the resurrection of Christ. And the soldiers, in a sense, did, did the same thing the women did. They went with the same basic message. He's not in there anymore. He rose from the grave. There was an angel. There was an earthquake. He tells them everything that, that happened. And they told them, it says, they told the chief priests all that had taken place. They did not lie. They gave a, a faithful and true report. They had no reason to lie. They had every reason to tell the truth. And so what did the chief priests and the elders do? They heard the news of the resurrection. Did it change their minds? Did it convince them to repent and believe in Christ? No. They got together to conspire to cover it up. And notice notice what they don't do. They don't dispute it. You would think, I would, I would have expected them to say, oh, that's crazy, there's no way that happened. What, what's the real story? No, they believe the soldiers. They go, well, okay, Jesus must have risen from the dead. Now what are we going to do? Imagine the hardness of heart, the deadness in sin that it took for these men who should have been the ones leading the way and expecting Christ to come and to die and to rise again on the third day to instead in hardness of heart cover it up in their unbelief. They didn't dispute it. They didn't accuse the soldiers of, of lying. They didn't argue with them. They didn't, accuse, they didn't accuse the soldiers of going crazy. Maybe they all just had a delusion together. Maybe they, maybe they were drinking on the job or something else happened. They didn't do any of that. They conspired to cover it up. In fact, they paid the soldiers to falsify their report and testify that they had fallen asleep on watch. And that, quote, the disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. That would have carried a very severe penalty. In fact, you know, it's not the same thing, but I remember one of the first things I had to do in the Navy was memorize the 11 watch standing orders. And one of them was, I will not fall asleep on watch. You fall asleep on watch, people can die if you're under attack. There was a very severe penalty for those soldiers. If they, It was dereliction of duty. And so the chief priests and the elders promised to keep them out of trouble if they got in trouble for it. And so well, they did what they were bribed to do. They went and told the lie. And Matthew tells us in verse 15, this story has spread among the Jews to this day. What a sad response to the news 
of Christ's resurrection. They refused to believe in Christ for salvation, even though they knew he rose from the grave, even as he had told them he was going to do. And sadly, many follow their example of unbelief and hardness of heart even today. No argument will will bring them to accept the truth of what they know to be the case. Only God can do that by his Holy Spirit. Only God can grant that repentance. Well, the last thing that Matthew brings up to our attention is, is the Great Commission in verses 16 through 20. Notice that before he even gets to that, though, he tells us of the disciples' reaction. He says in verse 17, when the disciples saw him, what did they do? It sounds like another recurring theme. They worshipped him. The disciples did what anyone with good sense and faith would do when they saw Jesus. They worshipped him. They acknowledged him rightly as their Lord and as their God. And and Matthew even adds a little human element there. What does he say? But some doubted. You know, if you and I were writing the scriptures, we would not have written that. If we were going to make up a hoax, we were going to make up a story, we never would have added that human touch that some doubted. And what does it mean? It's as if they couldn't believe their eyes. They were seeing Jesus, and it was so overwhelming, they were, this can't be happening. I saw him die. I saw him in the tomb. They doubted. It doesn't say they didn't believe. It said they doubted. You know, It's like the man prayed that we often think of in, in, in the gospel story that says, I believe, help my unbelief. That was the disciples at that time. And notice it says some. Apparently Thomas wasn't the only one that doubted. There were others among the, among the eleven that doubted as well, but they didn't doubt for very long. Now, the Great Commission is often viewed, it's often preached in isolation from the resurrection of Christ that precedes it in the same chapter, but I think that would be in some ways a mistake because it's the resurrection of Christ on the third day that leads to the Great Commission. They go together. There's a reason they're in the same section of, of Matthew's Gospel, it's because Jesus Christ finished his work of atonement on the cross and was raised on the third day that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, verse 18. Christ's resurrection was the proof that the price for our sins has been paid in full on the cross. Herman Bovig puts it this way, the resurrection was, quote, the amen of the Father upon the finished of the Son. And what he's talking about is on the cross, what did Jesus say? It is finished, paid in full, and the resurrection was God's stamp of approval that that was true. It was his amen to Christ finished upon the cross. It's because Christ has now risen that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's because of that that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all the things that the risen Christ has commanded us. That is the reason, the basis for the Great Commission. It's because Christ is now risen that all authority has been given to him, and because of that, that the disciples will be made. It's not hypothetical. It's because Christ has all authority and power in heaven and on earth because of his resurrection, that disciples will be made, and that he, all the nations will even be made disciples of Christ. And so as the psalmist says in Psalm 72, his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, and all nations shall serve him, Psalm 72, 8 and 11. 
And as if to guarantee to the weak faith of his disciples and to his church, our risen Lord Jesus Christ adds in, in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's because he rose from the grave that he's with us always. And he's at the right hand of God. He's with us by the presence and work of his Holy Spirit. It's because he has risen from the grave that he has all authority, that he can give us the Great Commission, that he can promise us his presence and power with us always so that disciples will be made of all the nations and the rest is history. And it's continuing even now because Jesus is alive and risen from the grave and seated at God's right hand. The, the, The nations right now are being made his disciples. How big of a difference did the resurrection make in the lives of the early Christians and even today as well? A book I've often quoted this quote from, J. Gresham Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. I highly commend it to you. But on page 42, he says this, What was it that within a few days transformed a band of mourners into the spiritual conquerors of the world? It was not the memory of Jesus' life. It was not the inspiration which came from past contact with him. But it was the message, he is risen. It wasn't just their sentimental notions of Jesus, as liberalism would tell you. It wasn't just their happy memories of the way they used to be. It was the fact that Jesus was alive and the message, he is risen. That's what changed them from a bunch of frightened mourners to those who conquered the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is risen. The truth of that statement makes all the difference in the world. It should lead us to do as the women and and the disciples did and were commissioned to do and us through them. Our response should be twofold at least. First, we must, as we even sang, we we should joyfully worship Jesus Christ, our risen King. Worship is our first response. That should be our first and, and, and main response, to worship Christ And the second response is we should do the same thing as they're told throughout this passage. Go and tell. Worship Christ, the risen King, and then go and tell others the good news of Christ, his cross, and his resurrection, so that we can make disciples of all the nations to his glory. He is risen indeed. Amen.